Hello everyone, so this is episode 66. Let's talk about the mechanism of hypovolemic hyponatremia. So basically, solute and water loss is there. So water loss ultimately leads to hypovolemia, okay, and uh, hypotension and also renal perfusion is reduced. Due to reduction in the renal perfusions, the activation of RAS system is there, which leads to increase in the angiotensin 2. This angiotensin 2 activates the thrust enter, and this thrust increase leads to increase in the water intake, okay. So, by this mechanism, water is increasing in the body. Next mechanism is, there is hypotension which leads to baroreceptor activations which increases the ADH, that is the antidiuretic hormone. Also, this ADH is uh, stimulated with the help of angiotensin 2 which was uh, coming from the RAS system and increase in the ADH increases the water absorption from the kidney and therefore, ultimately, uh, both the mechanism leads to re reduction in the sodium concentration in the serum. Next is hypovolemia. Hypovolemia also leads to left atrial stretch receptors stimulation. So, left atrial stretch receptor stimulation is reduced. Okay, so BNP or and the ANP coming from the atrium stretch receptors is also reduced, which ultimately leads to increase in the ADH that is non osmotic stimulation and which also increases the water absorption and ultimately reducing the serum uh, sodium concentration. So, therefore, hypovolemia ultimately leads to hyponatremia. Okay. So, an assessment of the volume status is essential in diagnosing and treating the hyponatremia. Serum sodium less than 135 milli equivalent per litre. This patient's recent history of poor oral intrigue and the diarrhea due to clostridium difficile infection. Laboratory evidence of the pre-renal azotemia. Example, blood urea nitrogen by creatinine ratio of more than equal to 20. This suggests that it is pre-renal cause. Okay. An examination finding of the tachycardia hypertension and decrease in the skin turgon and also absence of the peripheral edema strongly suggests the hypovolemia. Depletion of the salt and the water. Hypovolemic hyponatremia occurs due to multiple pathway mechanism that illustrates the body priority to restore the euvolemia at increased risk of developing hypotonicity. So, decrease in the renal perfusion leads to decrease in the tubular sodium delivery which stimulates the renin angiotensin system and which increases the sodium reabsorption. Aldosterone angiotensin 2 also stimulates the thrust centers which leads to increase in the water intake. Second mechanism is non-osmotic stimulations of the antidiuretic hormones occur in response to the angiotensin 2 also because of hypovolemia which stimulates the stress receptors in the left atrium and also hypotensions which stimulates the baroreceptors in the carotid arteries. Okay. So, consequent salt and water detection helps correct the hypovolemia. However, in the setting of ongoing ADH secretions that is the hypotonic, uh, hypovolemic, uh, hyponatremia can develop due to retentions of the relatively excessive total body water. ADH level will remain high, not low, okay, until the hypovolemia is corrected. So, you see that ADH level will remain high until the hypovolemia is corrected. Infusions of the normal saline is uh, the treatment of choice for the hypovolemic hyponatremia as it replenishes the body's salt, depleted salt. So, we have to give them normal saline, okay, because it repletes the body, um, re re reduced salt and restores the euvolemia and also shut off the non-osmotic stimulations of the ADH. Other options for uh, high ADH and high urinary sodiums are characteristics of the syndrome of inappropriate AGH which is a common cause of the euvolemic hyponatremia. Low renin and low aldosterone would be expected in uh, case of uh, SIADH. This patient has hypovolemic rather than euvolemic hyponatremia and would be expected to have a low urinary sodium. Low ADH and low urine sodium may be observed in the patient with central diabetes insipidus which typically presents with polyuria, polydipsia, 
and normal to high serum sodium concentration so basically the take home from uh, take home point from this question was simply hypovolemic hyponatremia occurs due to non osmotic stimulations of the antidiuretic hormone secretions in response to the hypovolemia hypotensions and decrease in the renal perfusions via angiotensin 2 restoration of the blood volume shut off the non osmotic stimulations of the adh and corrects the hyponatremia and this restoration is done with the help of normal saline only okay moving on to the next thing which is simply the um, uh, basically acutibular necrosis so this patient was having a clinical presentation which is highly suggesting of the acutibular necrosis following hypovolemic shock so whenever you see a case of hypovolemic shock you can think about the acutibular necrosis because this can occur because of toxins or because of ischemia so because in hypovolemic shock it is because of ischemia so BUN creatinine ratio of 10 to 15 is typically seen in acute tubular necrosis in contrast to the pre-renal azotemia where you see the ratio to be more than equal to 20. Other finding that suppose the diagnosis are uh, first is the urinary osmolarity of 300 to 350 milliosmol per liter but it will never be less than 300 remember that. Next is urinary sodium concentration of more than 20 and if, uh, fraction of the sodium excretion will be more than 2%. Prolonged hypotensions from any cause of the which can lead to acute tubular necrosis. The hallmark finding of the urine analysis are the muddy brown cast consisting of the renal tubular epithelial cells, which is a non-specific but a very sensitive finding for acute tubular necrosis. Now, broadcasts are seen in the patients with chronic kidney disease. So, if you see broadcasts, what is that suggesting of? That is suggesting of chronic kidney disease. Okay, these arise in dilated tubules and enlarging nephrons that have undergone compensatory hypertrophy in response to the reduce in the renal masses and waxy cast is are shiny and translucent and these are also seen in CKD. So in CKD you can see two types of cast. One is the broad cast. Next one is the shiny waxy cast. Okay. Red blood cell cast is an indicative of the glomerular disease or vasculitis. White blood cell cast are definitive evidence that the urinary WBC is originating in the kidney. So these seen uh, the white blood cells cast are seen in interstitial nephritis and also the pyelonephritis. Fatty casts are seen in the conditions such as nephrotic syndrome. Hyaline casts are composed of almost entirely of the protein and passes unexchanged along the urinary tract. This may be seen in asymptomatic individual or in the patient with the pre-renal azotemia. Urinary eosinophilia is a classic finding of interstitial nephritis. So basically, muddy brown cast is seen in acute tubular necrosis. Red blood cell cast is seen in glomerular nephritis. White blood cell cast is seen in interstitial nephritis, pyelonephritis, fatty cast is seen in nephrotic syndrome, and broad waxy cast is seen in chronic renal failure. Alright, moving on to the next thing, which is the urinary tract infection. So urinary tract infections are more commonly seen in the women and uh, as compared to the males. Or uh, Okay, almost half of all the adult women have a urinary tract infections at some time in their life. The high incidence of the urinary tract infection in the women is primarily due to the shorter length of the female urethra after the periurethral area become colonized with the rectal flora, some bacteria ascends to the bladder to cause the infection. This is facilitated by the female short urethra. And predisposing factors of the urinary tract infections include the alterations of the normal vaginal flora with the help of recent antibiotic use or because of the sexual intercourse and also diaphragm and the spermicidal use can also lead to urinary tract infections and also family history of the multiple urinary tract infections. Males on the other hand are less likely to develop the urinary tract infections mainly because they have a longer urethra than, as compared to the females and they also have a periurethral uh, environment like drier periurethral environment and also antibacterial substances are produced in the prostatic fluid so that also helps to fight against the infections now 
shorter distance between the anus and the urethra in the women is associated with high incidence of the recurrent urinary tract infection but if you have to choose again amongst any one point then you have to say shorter urethra only okay not the shorter distance between anus and urethra spermicide and diaphragm are the risk factors for uti but that are only not a single factor responsible for this next is post uh, increased post voice residual volume is not associated with higher incidence of uti okay although it is seen in uh, recurrent urinary tract infections female hormone fluctuations is uh, not related to increase in the incidence of urinary tract infections okay now let's talk about the causes of peripheral edema so basically peripheral edema can be caused because of increase in the capillary hydrostatic pressure or because of decrease in the capillary oncotic pressure or because of increased permeability capillary permeability or decrease in the lymphatic obstructions or increase in interstitial pressure so let's talk about different causes so when you see the capillary hydrostatic pressure is increased which leads to edema so it is basically seen in three conditions first is the heart failure left ventricular or call pulmonary heart failure okay another one is the primary renal sodium retention that is renal disease or drugs and venous obstruction that is cirrhosis and venous insufficiency next is the decrease in the capillary oncotic pressure hyperbilirubinuria protein loss nephrotic syndrome and protein uh, losing enteropathies also decrease alveolar synthesis in case of cirrhosis and malnutrition increased capillary permeability seen with the help of burns and uh, trauma sepsis allergic reactions acute respiratory distress syndrome and malignant ascites lymphatic obstruction and increase interstitial oncotic pressure that is malignant ascites hypothyroidism and lymph node dissection so this patient's presentation with anasarca pulmonary and facial edema hypertension and abnormal urinary urine analysis with proteinuria and microscopic hematuria suggest a acute nephrotic nephritic syndrome because whenever there is blood like rbc then you think about the nephritic syndrome instead of nephrotic syndrome with fluid overload so i have already told you about the table which summarizes the mechanisms of the most common cause of the peripheral edema okay so acute nephritic syndrome is a primary glomerular damage due to Uh, which which can be because of the post reptococcal glomerular nephritis or iga nephropathies or because of lupus nephritis or membrane or proliferative glomerular nephritis or it can be because of rapidly progressive glomerular nephritis the primary glomerular damage leads to decrease in the glomerular filtration rate which eventually develop a uh, uh, development of the significant volume overload pulmonary edema dis- uh, distant when ne- uh, neck vein distensions and also the anasarca abnormal urinary sediment that is rbc cells rbc cast okay and uh, the a variable degree of the proteinuria are present on urine analysis serum creatinine ratio should also be elevated the increased volume leads to hypertension significant proteinuria plus 3 and eventually leads to hyperbilirubinuria which further contributes to edema and decrease in the glomerular filtration rate also causes the edema in the patients with the end stage renal disease okay so basically the answer for this question was primary glomerular damage which is leading to this uh, edema okay now three tbl brings edema is a localized non pitting thickening and indurations of the skin of the lower leg and the pretibial area and the dorsum of the feet and it is basically seen in graves disease hypoalbuminuria due to excessive albumin loss in seen in nephrotic syndrome and also the protein loss enteropathies and also decrease albumin synthesis in cirrhosis and severe malnutritions which can also cause the significant peripheral edema but it does not cause the pulmonary edema okay usually does not cause the pulmonary edema alveolar capillaries have a higher permeability of to the albumin at the baseline reducing the oncotic pressure difference and greater lymphatic flow than the skeletal muscles protecting the lung from edema so remember that whenever there is low protein so this low protein state that is nephrotic syndrome cannot cause the 
pulmonary edema so if you see a pulmonary edema and also you see the normal body edema then you have to think about the causes which is affecting both the kidney as well as the lung so you can think about Gushpasha syndrome or something like that so which is disrupting the glomerular basement membrane and also the alveolar basement membrane so leading to edema now edema in the lung cannot be because of the this uh, loss of the protein now Cirrhosis can cause the portal hypertensions as the scarred liver limits the blood flow through the sinus, sinusoidal tracts and networks. Okay, cirrhotic patients develop ascites and edema in the lower extremities due to increase in the venous pressures below the liver. However, the venous pressures above the hepatic vein, that is jugular venous pressure, is usually reduced or normal. Pulmonary edema uh, typically do not develop with cirrhosis. Next is renal hypoperfusions can leads to uh, can occurs in heart failure, decrease in the cardiac output which leads to decrease in the renal sodium and water retention and edema. However, urinary analysis on the patients with heart failure does not show the red blood cell cars and all this thing. Right ventricular failures is usually due to underlying left ventricular failures or uh, severe pulmonary diseases. But uh, elevated jugular venous pressure must be there and also peripheral edema should be there. But there was uh, no such finding of elevated jugular venous pressure in this question. So it's not because of that. Okay. Yeah. Moving on to the next thing, which uh, uh, we have to think about the uremic coagulopathy. Whenever a patient with kidney disease comes to you and you see that urea content is increased, so it can ultimately lead to uremic coagulopathy. Now let's talk about how. Okay, so abnormal hemostasis is common manifestation seen in the patients with chronic renal failure. Abnormal bleeding and bruising are characteristics of uremic coagulopathy. So nowadays, echimosis and epistaxis are generally major uh, only major bleeding manifestations due to an uh, advent of dialysis. However, the gastrointestinal bleeding and hemopericardium and subdural hematoma and bleeding from the surgical or the invasive sites can still occur due to uremic coagulopathy. So remember that. When patient with uh, kidney disease comes to you um, and the patient is on dialysis. So dialysis leads to echimosis and epistaxis. Nothing more than that. Okay, but if bleeding is from gastrointestinal tract, or around the heart, hemopericardium, or subdural hematomas is there in the brain, and also the bleeding from any surgical site or any invasive site, then you have to think about uremic coagulopathy, not only because of the dialysis, okay, because dialysis simply causes echimosis and epistaxis, not, and nothing more than that. Now, the pathogenesis is multifactorial, but the major defects involves the platelet vessels wall and also platelet-platelet interactions. Several uremic toxins have been implicated in the pathogenesis of the platelet dysfunction seen in the chronic renal failure. Okay, so this uremic toxins causes platelet dysfunctions. The chief among is uh, guanidinosuccinic acid. Okay, so the guanidinosuccinic acid is one of the uremic toxins which causes platelet dysfunctions. Activated uh, thromboplastin time and prothrombin time and also the thrombin times are generally normal. But bleeding time reflects the platelet functions which is prolonged. So platelet count will be normal but platelets still are dysfunctions and that can lead to bleeding with the because of this uremic toxins a number of agents such as desmopressins and uh, cryoprecipitates and conjugated estrogens have been used to correct the coagulopathy in uremic patients so what can you give, give the patients with the uh, uremic uh, coagulopathy so you can give either of three you can give either desmopressins or cryoprecipitates or also conjugated estrogens 
So desmopressin increases the release of univalent factors, multimer from the endothelial storage, which ultimately helps the coagulations. Okay. Now disseminated intravascular coagulations factor eight deficiencies and consumptive coagulopathy thrombocytopenia are not common cause of the bleeding in uremic patients. So DIC factor eight deficiency or consumptive coagulopathy or thrombocytopenia these are not uh, seen with the uremic uh, in uremic patients. Okay. This uremic patient simply causes platelet dysfunctions and uh, leads to bleeding. But this is a really, really important question. So do remember this. Okay. Now let's talk about the next thing, which is the acid-base disturbances. So we already know about the acidemia and alkalemia and the relation with the pH and also the bicarbonate and pSCO2 level. You can check out in one of the audios, previous audios. I have explained this. But uh, okay. So basically this patient with abdominal pain and he was also having dehydration and he was hyperventilating like fast and deep respiration and markedly elevated glucose these are the classic symptoms of dka diabetic ketoacidosis abdominal pain dehydration hyperventilations and markedly elevated glucose so this is are uh, the features of dka which is associated with type 1 diabetes mellitus the key features of dka and type 1 diabetes mellitus in this patients includes the acute symptom onset leaning body habitus that is bmi less than 25 and young age so DK is often initially present initial presenting pattern or finding of the type 1 diabetes mellitus. So patient may come to you with this DK only and then you diagnose the okay that this patient is having type 1 diabetes mellitus. Now expected acid based uh, findings in DK with hyperventilations include decreased pH, pSCO2 and bicarbonate. So you see that pH is also reduced that is acidosis, pSCO2 is also reduced and bicarbonate is also reduced. So let's see how. Because since it's a metabolic acidosis, okay, so since bicarbonate is reduced, the PSCO2 is trying to compensate and ultimately it is also reduced. So DKA causes an anion gap metabolic acidosis, okay, so this is metabolic acidosis, but there is an anion gap due to rapid accumulation of the keto acid. What sort of acid are accumulating? So beta-hydroxybutyrate, acetoacetate is accumulating. Such uh, bicarbonate and pH are therefore decreased. Chemo receptor senses the decrease in the serum bicarbonate and triggers the hyperventilations, resulting in decrease in the PSCO2 and representing a compensatory respiratory alkalosis. Compensation response, whether corrected, correcting for the acidosis or alkalosis, are unable to completely return the pH to normal. Therefore, although the patient is hyperventilating, slightly elevated pH will be there as the PSCO2 is reduced. Okay, so the pH still remains acidic and reflecting metabolic acidosis as the primary acid-base balance disturbances okay uh, so yeah this was it for this question so and okay so dk commonly occurs as a presenting symptoms in type 1 diabetes mellitus it general uh, generates an anion gap metabolic acidosis where you see low ph low bicarbonate and there is compensatory respiratory alkalosis where you see significant reduction in the pso2 but the ph still remains acidic and uh, it, this pso2 is reduced because there is increased respiratory rate and deep breathing all right so now let's talk about the next thing which is uh, HIV associated nephropathy okay so this patients with previously untreated HIV infection has edema okay so he was having HIV infections and uh, that was untreated he was not taking any medications and now he's having edema acute kidney injury along with that also proteinuria so likely due to HIV associated nephropathy so HIV associated nephropathy is thought to be caused by direct infections of the renal tubular uh, renal tubular and the glomerular cells because of by HIV virus so this HIV virus directly causes the 
adrenal tubular cell and glomerular cells to die like damage okay so the patients with advanced hiv with cd4 count low and high viral load or aids are particularly susceptible to the hiv associated uh, nephropathy okay and uh, may occur in the patients with a normal cd4 count as well so you don't have to think about the cd4 count only it is especially prevalent in the patients with sub-saharan african descent possibly due to the presence of the apolipoprotein l1 gene variant so apolipoprotein l1 gene variant if there then it uh, causes the uh, two things so what does it causes in uh, f sub-saharan african descent so it causes resistant to the trypanosomiasis so they won't have the trypanosomiasis if this mutation is there and if uh, this mutation is there they are increased uh, they are prone to the uh, susceptible to the hiv associated nephropathy okay so hiv associated nephropathy can develop relatively quickly and typically and presence with heavy proteinuria rapidly progressive renal failure edema hematuria hypertension may also occur the diagnosis is confirmed with the help of renal biopsy that demonstrates the collapsing focal segmental glomerulosclerosis so you see fsgs in case of uh, uh, hiv associated nephropathy also tubular reticular inclusions can be visible on electron microscopy antiretroviral therapy may help the kidney recovery and should be initiated in the patients who develop the hiv associated nephropathy and are not already on therapy and who are not taking the therapy so we must give them antiretroviral therapy therefore although this patient's kidney dysfunctions develop the following uh, acute uh, and uh, art okay initiation like he was uh, this patient's kidney dysfunction developed following the ART okay it is unlikely due to ART so basically this patient was just given the ART and it's not because of ART okay remember that antiretroviral therapy AC inhibitors are used in the patients with proteinuria and hypertension the prognosis of the HIV um, associated nephropathy is poor and uh, many patients develop end-stage renal disease with uh, even with the therapy so even with the therapy they can develop end-stage renal disease so hiv associated nephropathy is thought to be caused by the direct infections of the renal epithelial cells with the help of hiv virus typically presents with heavy proteinuria and rapidly progressive renal failure and edema and it is most common in the patients with sub-saharan african descent with the hiv advanced hiv infections okay now let's talk about bk virus induced nephropathy so this bk virus induced nephropathy causes progressive renal failure but is characterized by an interstitial nephritis with hematuria, pyuria, and WBC cast, not marked proteinuria. Okay. It occurs more commonly in the patients who have received the renal transplant. So, this uh, BK virus affects the patients with the renal transplant. It causes interstitial nephritis and with hematuria, pyuria, and WBC, but no proteinuria. So, if you see proteinuria, you don't have to think about the BK virus. You can think about anything else. Now, crystalline induced tubular dysfunctions can occur because of sulfamethoxazole which is an antibiotic specifically used for AIDS which presents with hematuria, pyuria and crystalline urea and frank pain is also there. Heavy proteinuria would be atypical. So heavy proteinuria is seen with HIV associated nephropathy not the crystalline induced tubular dysfunction. Interstitial nephritis can occur with the help of antibiotics, the amethophim sulfamethoxazole and also certain antiviral drugs such as the antiretroviral drugs such as indinavir but typically present with fever, rash, eosinophilia, pyuria and WBC cast not proteinuria. Primary membranous nephropathy causes the nephrotic syndromes with proteinuria. However, it typically causes a slow progressing chronic kidney disease and most patients have a normal creatine on presentation. Secondary membranous nephropathy because of hepatitis B, C occurs. The membranous nephropathy occurs because of hepatitis B and C but not because of HIV. So, it's not the case here. Okay. Now, let's talk about the idle screening program. So, idle screening program disease characteristics. So yeah, disease characteristics, common 
if disease is common then we have to go for screening if disease is serious then we have to go for screening if there is long asymptomatic phase then we have to go for screening and if correctable if identified early then we can go for screening like if the disease is common serious long asymptomatic phases there and also if you identified this disease early it can be correctable so for all those diseases we go for screening okay idle screening program is there for those diseases now patient characteristics high prevalence in particular population so screening must be done in, in that and appropriate age range uh, age range and also the gender the test characteristics it should be of low cost relative uh, relative to the disease severity and high sensitivity and specificity should be there acceptable to the broad range of the patient now program characteristics it identifies the population to be screened avoid the over diagnosis detects benign and indolescent diseases and avoid the lead time bias that is detects early but does not alter the ultimate prognosis and improves the outcomes of the screen and versus non screen population so basically the question was someone is having bladder cancer so do we have to screen for that that was the question so bladder cancer is the second most common urologic cancers after the prostate cancers in united states most cases arise in older individuals who have had the chronic exposures to the chemical carcinogens in tobacco smoke and the workplace example aromatic dyeing and also amines and also aluminum all these things or drinking water such as arsenic from a well water Although a family history of the bladder cancer in the first degree relative is associated with increased risk and multiple studies have found that bladder cancer screening does not provide any survival benefit even though a high even amongst the high risk populations first is the current screening test such as the dipstick urine analysis for hematuria cytology for the urinary sediment and also the uh, urinary tumor biomarkers uh, have relatively low sensitivity and specificity leading to missed cases that is because of low sensitivity and unnecessary workup for false positive testing most bladder cancers are detected in an early stage progresses slowly and are associated with relatively higher rates of the five year survival therefore early detections via the screening provides minimal mort uh, mortality benefits as such the united states prevention service task forces does not recommend screening for the bladder cancers at any age in any patient group okay so we don't have to screen for the bladder cancer that's it okay so yeah this is it for this lecture thank you so much for listening and i'm really sorry i was too late this time